This morning our text is going to be the first uh, six verses, and so I'd ask you please stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their uh, fellow prisoners, and, uh, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were, mis were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. <clears throat> Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we finally made it to the last chapter. Uh, I've been in Hebrews now for a little over a year. I saw uh, um, Scott McDermott, uh, General Assembly, uh, in the or middle part of June, and he said, where, where, are you, where are you preaching now on Sunday mornings? I said, in Hebrews. He said, well, that's where you were when I left. You're still there, huh? Yeah. We've been here a while. We've been in, in Hebrews, uh, I guess, a little over a year now, and here we are finally to the, the last chapter. Let me remind you a little bit of what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. He's writing to these, uh, these Jewish Christians. They have uh, converted to Christianity. They've seen that Jesus was the Messiah that was foretold in the Old Testament, the one they've been looking forward to all of this time, and they converted to Christianity, but now they're beginning to get, undergo some persecution. And a lot of that persecution is because they are Christians, because they've converted to Christianity. All of their uh, family members have said, well, you can't be a part of family. You left, you left Judaism. You apostatized. And, and so they rejected them. Some of them had lost jobs. Some of them had lost property. Some of them were being... Um, uh, uh, tried and, and persecuted in many ways, and it was going to get worse. The author of Hebrews, in, in the last chapter, reminds them, you hadn't shed your blood yet, but those days were going to come. And so in the midst of this, they're going, well, did we do the wrong thing? I mean, because if we did the right thing, it seems like God would be blessing us, and these kinds of trials and hardships and persecutions wouldn't be coming to us. So maybe we need to go back to our Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is saying, how can you do that? How could you do that? You know, Christ is superior to the Old Testament and all those things because he's the fulfillment of what they promised, right? He's what you've always been looking for. How can you go back to that which is promised when the promise is already here? And so he reminds them throughout the book of Hebrews, that Christ is superior. He's a superior revelation because he's a fulfillment of the revelation. That was a promise. He's the deliverance. He has reminded them that Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses who brought the old covenant and Christ brings the new covenant. And Christ is superior in the new covenant because in, under the old covenant they had um, these sacrifices, which we're actually looking forward to the one sacrifice that would come. 
And the sacrifices in the Old Testament, bulls and goats, they can't forgive sins. But the sacrifice that would come with Christ, it would come once and for all. And that, that there would no longer ever need to be more sacrifice because Christ would fulfill it. And the tabernacle, the tabernacle back then, and the temple that you're looking to and thinking that this is it, you remember Moses was given very specific directions on how to set that up because it was a copy of the real one in heaven. Moses and the Old Covenant and all those people, they, they worshipped there, but our Lord is worshipping and brought the sacrifice in the real tabernacle, which is in heaven, the heavenly one. And he goes on reminding them over and over and over again that Christ is superior. How could you ever think about going back to that? How could you leave Christianity and go back to those sorts of things? And so he's reminding them there's nothing for you to go back to there. And he's encouraging them, do not turn away. Stand firm. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Even in the midst of trials and hardships and difficulties, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And so in doing that, we get to chapter 13. In chapter 13, he says, okay, we're done with the main part of the sermon here. The, the book of Hebrews is, is, if you didn't realize it, it's a first century sermon that the author of Hebrews is writing to these Christians. And now he's, he's actually kind of done with the sermon, but he's getting on to some very practical matters as a result of these things. How are you to live? What are you supposed to be doing? How are you as Christians to live your daily lives, even in the midst of all these hardships and difficulties? And so this morning he gives some, uh, some concluding exhortations, if you will, and uh, especially in light of the fact that God is love and we're created in his image and part of that means that we are to reflect what he looks like and that uh, Jesus came and in love gave his life for us in fulfillment even though he recognized what the cross was all about and he despised the shame yet he loved us so much that he gave himself for us we're to respond in love as well. And he gives us in this passage, I think, uh, five different aspects of love that we're to be uh, involved in as people of God, that they were to be involved in, but we too, 2,000 years later, are still to be involved with as Christians. And so let's look at this Christian love, this superior love that, that Christians are to uh, exhibit. The first uh, thing I want you to notice uh, that he says in uh, verse 1 is keep on loving each other as brothers. Keep on loving each other as brothers. You know, when uh, when we become part of uh, when we become a Christian, we become a part of the family of God. We become a part of the body of Christ in the family, and so indeed we are brothers. And so He's telling us, you know, you got to love the brethren. Um, he, He's kind of, in a sense, reminding us from what we uh, read in Psalm 133, the first verse, is how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Uh, we're to live together in unity. And in John chapter 15, Jesus reminds his disciples, you know, that they, when he leaves, they are to go on loving each other. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus will go on and say, you know what? When the world looks at you, they'll know that you're a child of mine because of your love and your love for one another. 
We're one in Christ. And if we're one in Christ, we should certainly love one another. Um, in a sense, it's, it's like the family, a husband and wife. They, they're no longer two, but they're one. And if one despises the other, he's despising himself, really, in a sense, right? Christians are to love one another. We're never to desire harm uh, to a fellow Christians. We don't look at them and in any way rejoice in their uh, hardships, but rather we rejoice when they rejoice and we weep when they weep. We're to love them, love each other as brothers, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us. Now, this isn't always the easiest thing to do. Christians are still humans and there's still a residue of the old man in us and not everyone is easy to love. And sometimes people will just rub you the wrong way. Can you imagine a Jesus walking around with his disciples, the 12 of him following him around on a daily basis? And, um, and Peter, who's always there sticking his foot in his mouth, he's like, Peter, please get a grip, buddy. Come on. But he still loved him, right? Or the, those that would come to him and say, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, grant that one of us sit on your right hand and one on your left, right? And they still didn't get it. And you go, how dense can you be? And even after he's raised in the first chapter of Acts, they say, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom in Jerusalem? They still didn't understand what the kingdom of God was all about. And you think someone... That way they could just rub you the wrong way. <laughs> Difficult to love them. Wonder how often we rub the Lord the wrong way, right? Every time we say, I know better than you do. Every time we, we look at his law and we say, uh, yeah, but you didn't really mean it in my case, right? So we wouldn't break his law. Love. Uh, we often hear that love is a choice, and it certainly is. We have to choose to love sometimes because people themselves aren't necessarily always uh, lovable. Uh, but we have to choose to love anyway. But for a Christian, it's not really a choice. It's, we're commanded to love one another. You see how important it is um, at this point to express the love of God and, and to be evangelizing the world because we live in a world that doesn't love. And uh, we, we've seen this yesterday and even once again this morning, uh, in a world that seems to be full of hate. We are to express love to each other as brothers and to express love even beyond that as he goes on here in uh, verse 2. It says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, or by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And certainly he must be thinking of the, the situation where Abraham has the angels come to him, and Lot even has angels come to him, and others in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see angels coming to them and them entertaining them. But uh, in, in maybe other ways that we don't have recorded for us, but maybe they were aware of back then. But uh, he, the main point here is not so much that we're entertaining angels, but for what we're supposed to do. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers. Be hospitable. Now, in those days, 
the inns weren't necessarily the best place for Christians to stay. In fact, they were awful places. Quite often they would be excessively dirty, they would be unbelievably expensive, and they were often associated with quite corrupt morals. And so it was not a good place for Christians if they're traveling about to, to stay in an inn. And so in those days, uh, Christians uh, would get to know of other Christians in a town where they were going, try to find out where they lived, and when they got to that town, they would go knock on the door. Hey, hey brother, I'm your brother in Christ. I need a place to stay. And they would open their doors and, and uh, invite them in. Um, in, in our world, there are so many uh, shysters, and that, that seems to be kind of a, a dangerous thing simply because somebody come knock on your door and say, I'm a Christian. I, I saw that uh, in Jamaica several years ago. You go to the uh, little flea markets they have and stuff, and all of the vendors there, and they would know that you were with a Christian group. They go, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian too. They're coming by my stuff, right? And we see uh, so many who would use that in a way to harm us, and we don't want to uh, be naive in that sort of way, but I do think that, that we are or should be uh, entertaining strangers and be hospitable even in our day. Um, there, there are certainly ways to do this. Um, we uh, help people when we can. You see uh, someone stopped uh, beside the road, their car is broken, stop and see if you can help them fix it. Um, you know, give them a ride if they need those sorts of things. Uh, we can, uh, especially when we have visitors come into church, not only greet them and welcome them to church, but how about inviting them to come and eat with you after church? That's one thing that I like about the group that uh, meets over here for lunch on Sundays. Um, and, and if you don't come, we're not doing it today, but typically it's open to everyone. We're, we're not a clique just for ourselves. It's open to everyone, and we would invite everyone to come and join us. But one of the things I, I really like about it is when we have visitors. It's like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see them on the way out and tell them, hey, we're going to have lunch over here. You want to come join us? They say, well, we've already been invited by three other folks, right? That's a good thing. Those are the kinds of things. We need to be hospitable. We need to, we need to uh, not forget to entertain strangers, as he says here. And in doing that, we're showing love. We're loving not only the brothers in Christ, but we're also loving uh, strangers. Um, thirdly, we need to show love not only to the brothers and to strangers, but to those in need. Look with me in verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Uh, those in prison, those who are mistreated. Well, uh, a big reason for probably those who are being in prison that he's talking about right now, he may be thinking very specifically of those who have been thrown in prison because of their faith in Jesus. Wasn't uh, uh, in some circles they were saying this is not a legal religion you can't do this and so they were throwing them in prison because of their faith. Remember Paul was thrown in, pr in prison uh, because of his faith. 
Now, if you were in prison in those days, it wasn't like prison in our days where you live where they've got a nice cot for you to, to sleep on, uh, they got air condition, they got the televisions, they got uh, the gyms for you to go work out in, and, and they have uh, three meals a day, and all the other provisions that you have, they didn't have their provisions met like that. You may remember Paul writing to Timothy and saying, Timothy, I know you're coming. When you come, don't forget to bring my coat, right? Because the government wasn't providing those sorts of things. Um, if they were going to eat, they had to have people bring the food into them. And so the author is telling us, if they're in prison, I can hear their fellow prisoners, but take what you can bring them from the outside and provide for them. In the early church, uh, people did this quite well. Read to you from... Uh, Commentator William Barclay, by the way, if you ever read his commentaries, he's great on illustrations, not always great on orthodoxy, but uh, let me read to you this little bit of uh, illustration. He uh, talks of a heathen, a heathen orator who said of Christians, if they hear that any one of their number is imprisoned or in distress for the sake of their, their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity and if he can be redeemed, they set him free. If, they, if he can be bought his way out of prison, they'll, they'll collect the money to do it. And then he goes on, When Origen was young, it was said of him, not only was he at the side of the holy martyrs in their imprisonment and until their final condemnation, but when they were led to death, he boldly accompanied them to danger. This sort of action of the early Christians was not unnoticed by other um, pagans. And there was an emperor in, uh, in Rome who saw that this was the way that the Christians acted when people were put in jail. The Christians put in jail, other Christians came and met their needs. <laughs> Listen, th this one emperor, he passed a legislation that said that no one was to show kindness to sufferers in prison by supplying them with food and that no one was to show mercy to those starving in prison. He did this because the Christians were doing that. And it was added that those who were discovered so doing would be compelled to suffer the same fate as, they, as those they tried to help. It didn't stop the Christians. They still did it. They still continued to provide for those in need. And uh, the author of Hebrews is telling them, you provide, this is what you're supposed to do. And he's telling us to do the same thing. Now, how do we do it? Well, there are a number of ways that we can do it, but I'm going to mention at least two. Our church supports uh, ABBA, the local um, right to life and uh, pro-life organization that helps women in crisis pregnancies and helps them much. And they have a... Um, they give uh, free sonograms. They give um, materials to the women who need it to help them with their babies. Um, we support them financially as a church. You could support them financially, but we also have a big bucket over next door in Grace Halls, a great big tub. And we collect through the year. We don't mention it that often, but we do collect items for ABBA. And you can buy children's stuff. You can buy, you know, the, the, the food or the milk or clothing or toys or whatever you want to get to help those ladies. You can put it over there, and we take it to Abba when, it, when our tub starts to get full. 
They're also um, in the back when you head out this morning, first Sunday every month when we have communion, uh, we have uh, uh, these boxes in the back that are there. And those boxes are there. they got a little slit in the top, and you can drop, you know, check or money in it. And that's what's called the deacon's fund. What our deacon's fund is all about is a separate fund that we as a church have. And it is to provide for the needs of our congregation if they should get into a tight place. Um, say um, something happened, a medical emergency came, and they didn't have the money to pay uh, all of it. If, if we're able to, with the deacon's fund, we help provide that. Or maybe something else happened. They can't pay their light bill this month, and we, we uh, would, would help to pay that and those sorts of things. So the deacon's fund, which we have, is another uh, way that you can show that you want to help those in need by contributing to that above your regular time. Okay, so we see the author of Hebrews telling us, you know, um, as you continue to look to Christ and the love that he has for you and the fact that God is love and that we're made in his image, we're recreated in the image of Christ as a result, then we're to show love too, show love for our brothers uh, as if they are our real brothers because they really are. Show love to strangers, uh, be hospitable. Show love to those in need. And then fourthly, in verse four, he says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Love your spouse. Love your spouse. Um, we live in a society where we're mostly told to love ourselves. We see that in so many ways. We especially see it in marriage where we live in a society where uh, statistics tell us that 50% of first marriages in America men end in divorce within the first five years. And so often, uh, what we hear with that is, you know, I just, I, I really loved them when we got married. I don't, I don't love you anymore, right? Is that, that the words we hear? I, I, just, I just don't love you anymore. Our counselors are kept busy. There's a whole industry of Christian counseling, marriage and, and family counseling to, to help Christians stay together. The author of Hebrews here is saying, you know what? Marriage should be honored by all. Marriage should be honored by all. It's not easy when we see role models uh, divorcing. There was a, a man who was part of a, a, a younger group that called themselves Young, Restless, and Reformed. Um, he wrote a book not, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, which stayed, I Kissed Dating Goodbye talking about courtship and, and how you do that in order to find your perfect uh, uh, mate and everything. A few years ago, he, he uh, said, I wish I hadn't written that book. Uh, I don't agree with those things anymore. And then within the last couple of years, we saw him who, who had become a minister say, you know what, I, I just don't love my wife anymore, and so I'm divorcing her. And here within the last... Uh, six months or so, he's uh, completely turned away from Christianity and abandoned the faith. It seems that the idea out there, and this comes in ch from church pulpits too, and uh, it's, it's just not the case, uh, God wants me to be happy. And I'm, not, I'm just not happy in this relationship with my spouse right now. 
And I know I would be happier with someone else. And I know that because God wants me to be happy that what I need to do is leave this person and divorce them. And then find the right person for me that will make me happy. And that's what God wants after all. No, that's not the case. When we get married, we make vows not only to each other, but we make vows to God. And one of the vows that we make to God is that we will stay with this person until death do us part. Right? We are to honor the marriage and it's to be kept by all and we are to love our spouse even as Christ has loved the church and gave his life for her. We are to love our spouses that much to give ourselves totally and completely for them. Not just saying, you just don't do it for me anymore. Uh, maybe the idea should be, how can I continue to always take care of you in the way that you need it? And Well, the author of Hebrews reminds us that loving is not only for our brothers, not only for strangers, not only for those in need, but especially for our spouses, but fifthly and finally, we see here in verse 5 that we are to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Um, this idea is that we have love for the one who's provided for us. We're told that we are not to love money here that we're to keep our lives free from the love of money. Well, why is that? Why should we not have our lives consumed with the love of money? Well, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We see it in our day, don't we, when... Um, you know, the salesman will lie to you just in order to make that commission that he needs and to gain the money and you get something that he's lied to you about and it doesn't do what he said. He loved money more than he loved the truth and certainly loved money more than he loved God. As we focus our attention on money and the consumption of money, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're told about money and the one who's living his life for money, and it says, it is never enough. John Rockefeller was once asked um, about, you know, his millions, and they said, you know, and he's saying he didn't quite have enough just yet. So someone asked him, how much is enough? And he says, a little bit more. A Rockefeller telling you, I don't have enough to be contented with. I need a little bit more. That's what money does to you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, says you cannot serve both God and money. For you will love the one and hate the other, cling to one and reject the other. Jesus sees a rich man who comes to him, a rich young man who comes to him in Matthew 19 and he wants to follow Jesus. He wants to get into the kingdom of God. And he knows that following Jesus is the way. And so he's asking him what he must do. And so um, Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. And he says, which ones? And Jesus mentions the second table of the law to him. 
And uh, the young man says, I've done all that since I was young. And Jesus says, one more thing then. Go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. He's not willing to give up his money to follow Jesus. So he says his countenance changes, his face drops to the ground, and he walks away. Money's too important to him. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples at that point, you know, it's harder, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> he loves his money more than he loves God. In fact, it's so hard, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And by the way, he's talking about a sewing needle. It's easier for the camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We tend to love our money more than we love God, or the pursuit of money more than we love God. And when we maybe have enough, when we, we think that we finally have enough money, what are we going to do with that money? We have no needs now, right? All of our, anything that we can want, we can purchase it with money. If we get sick, we can buy uh, whatever um, uh, medical uh, attention we need. If we have need of a, of a house that's more comfortable, we can pur purchase that. If we have need to go on vacation to faraway lands, we can, we can do that. Whatever we need, we've got it provided for us in our money. We don't really need God, do we? We think we have enough. But Paul, in the book of Romans, reminds us of how God provides for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says, What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... Uh, along with him, graciously give us all things. Are you trusting in the provision of what you make, the money that you make? Or are you trusting in the one who gives those provisions? In uh, Genesis 15, um, you, you recall that Abraham goes on this great battle to save his nephew Lot. And he defeats all these kings and there's all this wealth involved with it. And the king of Sodom comes up to him after the battle and says, you can take all the wealth, just let me have the people. And you remember what Abraham said? Yeah, I don't want any of that. I mean, I'll let anyone say that they made Abraham wealthy. The only one's going to be able to say that is God. And then chapter 15 of Genesis starts with this. The Lord comes to Abraham and he says, don't you worry, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your great reward. What's God give Abraham? Not all this bounty from the battle that you just won. I can give you myself. Are you going to be content with me? Are you going to be content with just me or the material blessings of the world? Which do you want more? And so the author of Hebrews is reminding them and he's reminding us, well, we need to trust in our provider and show him love and recognize that he has given us all this great wealth and his son Christ Jesus and that he has given us himself as a result. Can we be content with him? 
We're to have love for our provider and say, yes, I recognize that maybe uh, I'm not the wealthiest, maybe I'm not driving the nicest car, living in the nicest house, but Lord, you give me yourself. What more could I ever ask for? And so the author of Hebrews here is reminding us that we need to keep ourselves free from the love of money because that's going to drive us away from God. And, 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 uh, instead, let us rejoice and show our love to the one who's provided for us, who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Well, this morning, as we're uh, getting to some of the concluding remarks of the author of uh, Hebrews, and he's giving us these exhortations. And as we see this exhortation to love, to love each other as brothers, to love strangers, to love those in need, to love our spouse, to love our provider, we realize that we don't do this in order to become a part of God's kingdom, to become a child of God. We're not doing this in order that he would say, he would look at us and say, okay, now you've done enough to earn it. That's not why we do it. You see, he's called us into his family from before the foundation of the earth. He's shown his love to us by sending his son uh, over 2,000 years ago to, to die for us. We, uh, he's already brought us into his family as his children. So what's our response going to be to that? Not to try to earn what he's already given us. He's already given us that. What is our response going to be? As Christians, we're going to say, this is what it means to be in God's image. This is what it means to be remade in the image of Christ, that we would love in this way. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding first century Christians of that. He's reminding 21st century Christians of that here in Gainesville this morning. We need to love our brothers, love the strangers, love, uh, love those in need, love our spouses, and especially love God who is our provider. Let's pray.